0: Hello and welcome to the latest edition of The Phasey View. This is my regular podcast where I explore collision between the worlds of tech and public policy. I used to be David Cameron's technology minister, so I'm fascinated about how all the changes in our digital age impact on public policy. And I've had virtual tours around Europe. I've been to France. I've been to Holland. I've been to Estonia. I've been to Israel to find out what they're doing to support their tech communities. I've taken deep dives into particular sectors like agritech and cyber security. I've spoken to commentators and I've spoken to ex-prime ministers like Tony Blair and Malcolm Turnbull. But today, I'm delighted to welcome the biggest beast of them all, Saul Klein, who is a very old friend. And in case you're one of the few people on the planet who hasn't heard of Saul Klein, let me just give you a little introduction. Saul Currently runs a seed investment fund, Local Globe, and a scale-up fund, Latitude. I think it's fair to say he'll no doubt correct me. It happens with every introduction I do to every guest I get corrected. But I'll try and get the biography, broadly speaking, accurate. Started his tech career, if you like, at Skype. Then went on to be one of the founders of Love Film, a sort of British Netflix, which was bought by Amazon and then started seed investing. And in fact, if you look at his deck, there are some great companies where Local Globe was in on the ground floor, like Robin Robinhood, TransferWise, Oxford Nanopore, and Improbable. And I think it's fair to say that, for those of you listening in the US, that Saul in the UK is one of the best known seed tech investors and has an unparalleled, I think, overview of the tech ecosystem in the UK and indeed in Europe. But the real reason I wanted to talk to Saul was because I think he has unique and interesting perspectives on how the tech ecosystem is being shaped by global forces and what the kind of major tech trends are going to be now and in the future. And I also want to concentrate in this podcast on his focus on place, because it's interesting in an age when we work from home and in a global ecosystem that Saul still thinks it's vitally important that we focus on the local ecosystem that supports the tech community. So welcome Saul. Thank you.
1: I'm honored to be here and um, I won't correct you immediately
0: I was about to say now is your chance to but, do. Uh, right.
1: you, you you very kindly cut ten years off my professional life, which you know makes me feel young again.
0: Well, you look so good, I I couldn't quite believe it. What what did I miss out? We we
1: can get into it, but I mean the interesting thing for me, at least pre Skype and pre Love Film, and Love Film came came before Skype, is that I was really lucky to spend my my kind of professional schooling in this industry in in the US from 95 to 2002 you know where where I was sort of fortunate to be involved early on in sort of seeing companies like netscape you know when they were getting started and being part of a company there was a spin out from the MIT media lab and we can talk about university spin outs later that got acquired by microsoft and being in seattle when microsoft was sort of the big beast. And all of that, in a sense, was actually pre-2002 when post 9-11, I came back to the UK and, and sort of, you know, saw what was happening to, to the tech ecosystem. But part of my formative thinking, I guess, was really shaped by the sort of the seven to 10 years I spent in my 20s in the US, you know, where where I think, you know, certainly in those days, the tech industry was, was very much being birthed.
0: So yeah, and I also missed out your stint as a partner at Index Ventures as well, (laughs) because I can't read my own handwriting. But you've actually, uh, I wasn't going to open talking about this, but you've actually kind of given me an opening to talk about, which is to a certain extent, from a UK policymaker's view, there is this constant kind of looking over our shoulder at the US. We have this uh, symbiotic relationship with the US tech ecosystem. And indeed, one of our colleagues, as it were, I use that in the loosest sense of the word Alex Chesterman who I hope I'll interview in the future currently uh, creating a unicorn in 18 months out of kazoo says quite openly that his uh, way of success is to copy the US and see what's worked over there and then just bring it over to the UK and we'll also talk about your idea about place in a minute which you but you call it explicitly the new Palo Alto so tell me a bit about what you learned in the US that you think has Transferred over here because it does feel that the UK is following a US path, but sort of 10 years behind.
1: Well, I mean, I think that would probably be generous to say 10 years behind. I,
0: I was being generous.
1: You know, that's very kind of you and, and very global Britain of you. But um, <laughs> I mean, I, I'd say this industry, and by this industry, I really mean venture capital and sort of the way that venture capital has been able to create well, finance, support, and help to create, you know, companies that are are impactful at a global scale. You know, this has been going on in the U.S. since the, the 1950s. And in a sense, it only really kicked off in the U.K. 20 years ago. So, I mean, arguably, you know, we are many decades behind the U.S. And, you know, to some degree, a decade or two behind Israel, which also has an incredibly, as you know, uh, mature and successful ecosystem. In fact, Saul Singer wrote a, a fantastic book which your listeners might be interested in called Startup Nation. It's quite old now, about ten years old, but it's it's a brilliant description of how, at a national level, uh, you know, a country can be innovative. But you know I guess the things that I learned both in Boston, in, in the early 90s and then in, in Palo Alto at the same time and in Seattle was this sort of sense of of risk, this attitude towards risk, the sense that technology was a, a transformative force within society and that, you know, you really also needed an ecosystem. And by that, I mean, you know, multiple stakeholders to make this work. So my sort of first experience of Palo Alto or Silicon Valley was flying to uh, to San Jose when I was actually working at the Telegraph in in 1993 when our prime minister was an op-ed columnist you know Max Hastings was the editor and Conrad Black was the owner and I went with a colleague out to uh, San Jose to meets a company called Mosaic Communications, uh, they were doing a pre IPO uh, round. And, you know, I went on behalf of, of the Telegraph group to go and see, you know, is this a company that we might want to invest in? And I, I walked into this office on, on University Avenue in Palo Alto, which is the high street, basically in Palo Alto and you know, walked into this office where there were 20, 30 people who completely ignored you when you walked in. Everyone was sort of you know, tapping away at their keyboards. And we met this guy uh, called Jim Clark, who'd been the founder of Silicon Graphics, which was a billion dollar uh, business. And he had sort of effectively started this company, which that day changed its name to Netscape. And you know, we met with him and it was just intoxicating you know to see what was happening there and we came back and we wrote this long report for how the internet was going to be the printing press for the 20th century and you know the, the telegraph should should sort of you know really take advantage of this and be an early mover and the telegraph was we actually went online a week before the San Jose Mercury news so kind of great british innovation you know like gravity or the splitting of the atom, we kind of got there first. But then the momentum, the pace, the scale of the valley and the US ecosystem obviously took over. And if you look at the most valuable companies in the world now, I think nine out of 10 are venture backed. They didn't exist 30 or 40 years ago, and all of them are American or or Chinese. So, you know, I I, I sort of a lot just by by being in that ecosystem, seeing how some of these things happened very early on, and understanding, you know, that there were multiple stakeholders that made this happen. Great founders like Mark Andreessen uh, at Netscape, great teams, you know, the, the teams around uh, Netscape, around Amazon, around Yahoo in those days, the financial backers, the venture capitalists. The boutique investment banks, many of which don't exist anymore, you know, been rolled up like h q into JP Morgan. You know, these were very formative days and I, I learned an enormous amount. And when I came back to the to the UK in 2002, you know, while the UK had had its, its moments, you know, last minutes had gone public when I mean, that was it. And, you know, the UK was, was still pretty much a sort of a wasteland for tech and, and for innovation. Although one thing I would say, and, you know, I think we've talked about this in the past, and, and I think the people in the US are often surprised at this, is that for 20 plus years now, I've seen Whitehall and Downing Street be very open to understanding the role that tech and innovation can play. Within, within our economy and within society. My first experience of this was when James Parnell, who you know at that point was in the cabinet office, he hadn't become an MP yet. Uh, we'd, we'd known each other, I think, at, at university. And he was working you know, for Tony Blair in the cabinet office. And this was in the late 90s. He said, you know, will you come in and just talk to me about what you've seen has, is going on in the US? And I think this openness and this curiosity, for me, I've seen persist. Through Blair, uh, Gordon Brown, who you know helped to create what became the Open Data Institute, you know with Tim Berners-Lee and Nigel Shadbolt, the coalition governments, you know obviously which which you were part of, then the Cameron governments. We had a little hiatus, you know, with May and Hammond, you know taken up by Brexit, and then you know obviously now you know, both the, the, the PM, the chancellor, and I'd say more broadly across the policy landscape, there's a real understanding that tech and science are, are part of really creating a society that is a sort of innovative and successful. I mean, there's some big issues, as you pointed out, that we need to address. But I think people are always surprised at how integrated the policy landscape here is uh, with the rest of the ecosystem, which I think is incredibly healthy.
0: This is a great podcast because I only have to ask you a couple of questions and we can probably fill the entire 40 minute slot. But I've now worked out the three themes I want to dive deep into. But just briefly, by the way, did the Telegraph invest in Netscape? So <laughs> the, the short
1: answer to that is is no.
0: So let's start with science and technology, because we are going to talk about Somers Town in a minute, which is your placemaking thesis, but talk about, you know, you've identified some of the trends that are going to happen, and you put science and technology right at the heart of what's going to make things tick. And it's interesting, uh, we, we could talk, I mean, I think the UK is obviously a highly successful ecosystem compared to its peer group, which is other European countries, but you also mentioned Israel. And we look over our shoulder at the US. We do look over our shoulder at Israel. We're obsessed by Startup Nation, and we're obsessed by the military-industrial complex, if you like, of Israel. And we're about to have legislation to create our own ARPA, Advanced Research Projects Agency. We've got great leadership in artificial intelligence because of the Deep, deep Mind ecosystem. We've got space leadership. We've leaned into space. So what are the kind of science and technology underpinnings if you like, that you think could help the UK begin to kind of continue to pull ahead?
1: Well, I, I mean, I, I would first say, you know, having downplayed the UK in relation to the US and China, which is, I, I think, just a fact, the reality is, and, you know, this has been true for for several years now, you know, the UK and the UK's ecosystem from a tech perspective is double well, it's, it's France, Germany and Sweden combined in terms of the amount of venture capital uh, in the UK, in terms of the number of billion dollar companies, aka unicorns in the UK. And it's more than double Israel. And I think a lot of people are surprised to know that after the Bay Area and Beijing, London and the broader UK ecosystem is the sort of the third uh most important ecosystem in the world and you know importantly you know we have this incredible pipeline uh, which one of my colleagues calls future corns companies valued at 200 million to 800 million again relative to to the rest of of our geography so i mean i know as brits we hate to have good news and we hate to be really good at anything but actually you know one of the most shocking things to me when i came back from living in israel uh, where where I was from 2010 to 2012 to the UK, was that how strong the UK tech economy actually is. And, you know, arguably we, we can do a much, much better job of articulating that because the facts that underpin the narrative are incredibly strong. You know, some of our peers in Europe, I mean, France in particular, have used the theatre of the Elysee Palace to, to you know, bring... The tech titans to to France and sort of you know create the, the idea that France could be be a real competitor uh, to the UK here. But you know when you sort of look at the facts, the facts are sort of uncontrovertible and actually not just in tech, where you see you know this huge swathe of, of relative sway of venture capital of unicorns. But also, this is true in talent. There are 2.9 million people in the UK who work in tech. There are over a million job openings in tech. And then when you look at the science base, on a relative basis, again, in terms of the, the, the level of which our research base is cited globally, you know, the UK is actually ahead of the US and China so when you when you talk about some of these core what, what I would sort of think of as strategic technologies, i.e. technologies that like robotics, AI, neuroscience, genomics, blockchain, space, as you mentioned, mixed reality, you know those are seven technologies, all of which could be as transformational as mobile or cloud computing. You know the uk or or sort of you know our our area, given its sort of academic strength, its research background, is incredibly strong relative both to the US and China. And you could argue that in a a world of sort of US and China trade wars, actually being a a, a third place, you know, and and again, I mean this is for there being many downsides of no longer being in the European, Union, you know, one of the upsides, obviously, is being able to create our own, you know, science and and, and trade policies. You know, if you are a U.S. company in one of those seven strategic areas, it's pretty unlikely you're going to be able to get major contracts in China. If you're a Chinese company in one of those strategic areas, we know for a fact you're not going to get those contracts in the U.S., I mean, I I think it's a very contrarian idea, but, you know, if I was a U.S. or Chinese tech company, I'd be looking to cite my R&D activities in the U.K. or in Europe in the next 15 to 20 years. Because in terms of intellectual property patents, drawing from a research base and being able to sell into some of these other markets, it might make more sense. So I mean, this is one of the reasons why, when we look at this ecosystem that's forming uh, around King's Cross, around London, this sort of new Palo Alto, which we think of as a four-hour train ride from King's Cross, you know, which includes, by the way, Paris, it includes Amsterdam, it includes Brussels, but obviously takes in Manchester, Leeds, Bristol, Oxford, Cambridge, etc. This cluster, this ecosystem, this new Palo Alto, arguably while it's number three to the Bay Area and Beijing today, you know, over the next 20 years has profound strategic uh, and and geopolitical advantages, potentially.
0: So that's a nice segue to placemaking and what you call the new Palo Alto, which is an example to a certain extent of us mimicking the U.S. And it is always said, obviously, about Silicon Valley that it is a geographical wonder, this incredible cluster of universities, capital and startups and skills. George Osborne, when he was chancellor, always used to talk about creating the new Silicon Valley in the U.K. And essentially, that's what you're saying. Somers Town, which is an area around King's Cross in broadly speaking, the east of London, could be because you've got amazing transport links with the train station that can take you to Paris and Brussels and Amsterdam in fact so you're on the doorstep of Europe but you're also on the doorstep of the north of England and we shouldn't forget cities like Manchester and so on also have fantastic tech ecosystems plus you've got uh, the University of the Arts you've got some of the big US tech companies with their headquarters there Facebook and Google and DeepMind which obviously counts as Google but has its own kind of identity so You clearly think, even in a kind of post-COVID, we're all on Zoom world, that that kind of geographical proximity is an essential underpinning for future success.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, absolutely. And I mean, I I think I was walking around the neighbourhoods this time last week and, you know, come three, four o'clock, the area kind of King's Cross um, and St Pancras, you know, where they're great restaurants and and bars was absolutely packed. And, you know, people want to be with people. They want to get out. And, um, you know, while I I think certainly in the tech industry, we've been very comfortable working remotely and existing in a sort of hybrid world of the internet, email, instant messaging, and and sort of in-person, interactions for like 15, 20 years now. And and certainly these ideas have now been mainstreamed. And many of the things that we would have thought, even personally, I would have been slightly uncomfortable with even 12 months ago, like, you know, remote doctor's surgeries, you know, kids learning remotely at school. I think, you know, we've all come to understand that, you know, without this sort of underpinning of, of technology, I mean, this is in basic infrastructure now. These are utilities. You know, Camden talks about universal basic services and the
0: internet is one of them. Camden being the local council. I
1: mean, the reason why I think, you know, this sense of place is so interesting is not just, you, you know, the place itself, but how the place is, is connected to other places. And, you know, the, the strength of, of Palo Alto is not just Palo Alto, which is a relatively small neighborhood, just like Summerstown is a relatively small neighborhood. It's sort of the the bullseye, it's the heart of a much broader ecosystem. Which you know, in in the U.S., Silicon Valley, or more broadly now, I would say the Bay Area. But you know, Silicon Valley has become a state of mind, not just a place. And and I, I think you know what's interesting to me about when we talk about New Palo Alto, and and you're right, it refers back to Palo Alto because you know, for me, you know, Palo Alto is like Mecca and Medina for for tech, and it always yeah. will be. It's the home of Apple, the home of Google, the home of Facebook, the home of Cisco, the home of Intel. You know, I can go on. You know, there's nothing I can see in the next fifty to hundred years that. Don't tell me that those will still be in some way, shape or form important companies doing important work in critical areas, as will Stanford. I believe that the ecosystem that we're building can be inspired by the innovation, the attitude, but we need a new mindset and a new framework. Because the role that technology is playing in society today is very different from the role it played 30, 50 years ago, where Palo Alto grew up. And arguably the unintended consequences of technology, you know, when it comes to fake news, income inequality, we need to rethink the ethical framework for technology and science within society and when we talk about new palo alto we're not just talking about a place we're talking about an attitude and a state of mind and i think that attitude and that state of mind you know will be able to confront some of these issues and challenges in a more inclusive and constructive way because of some of the cities and places within new palo alto like london like paris like amsterdam like brussels but as you said like Manchester, like Leeds, like Sheffield, like Bristol,
0: like Oxford, like Cambridge, like Brighton. San Francisco is to be failing, and I'm not saying it is failing and I'm not saying it will fail, but partly because of government, partly because of high taxes and partly because of failing infrastructure. And obviously everyone knows about San Francisco having this significant homeless problem. And then when you talked about comparing new Palo Alto to New York, it's, I was thinking about reverse colonialism, but maybe the old country, the UK, is potentially the new world in terms of reshaping tech's relationship with society. So I want to disappear down a rabbit hole I wasn't intending to go to and ask you to focus on the kind of ethical and social capital dimensions of your vision for new Palo Alto. Because up to now, we've been talking, to be frank, in the fairly straightforward terms, which is This is the new Silicon Valley because everything's here universities, capital, and companies, and they're all geographically near to each other. But what you're also saying is there's a chance to reset this relationship between, frankly, the kind of tech elites and the communities they live in.
1: I mean, 100%. And there is absolutely the potential, and we do have the chance because of all of these raw materials. And by raw materials, I mean the capital the, the talents, the, the companies, the science base, the research base, and the, and the policy environment. So the, all of these are kind of the raw materials and the ingredients that make for the possible. You know, we, we landed up slap bang in the middle of new Palo Alto. You know, the GVA, the, the output, the economic outputs of the City of London will be eclipsed in the next two years by the GVA of the, uh, five, the, the five to ten minute walk around King's Cross.
0: Which is a, a great stat for, for those who don't know London. You know, Camden is seen as a tra- kind of traditionally kind of left-leaning council. And it's, a, it's still a fairly affluent area. But I love the idea that it's going to be, as it were, worth more than the city of London.
1: Summerstown has been one of the poorest neighborhoods in London for a couple of hundred years. Why? Because it's stuck between these two train stations, Euston, King's Cross, St Pancras. When you look at who's actually lived in Town, Dickens, Wollstonecraft lived in Town. Godwin, Joe Cole lived in Somerstown. Um, but, you know, some of the, the great sort of thinkers, activists, writers. So there's this really deep cultural heritage. This area, as you say, it's an area of social housing. It's an area of social change. And that's on one side of the tracks. On the other side of the tracks, literally and metaphorically, but still in the Town ward, is Google, Facebook, DeepMind, Havas, Universal Music, and, and the University of the Arts. You know, within... Our area as well is the Crick Institute, which is one of Europe's top research centers for genomics and synthetic biology. You've got the British Library, which contains not just the Magna Carta, but every single publication ever published in the UK. And within that, you've got the Turing Institute, which is the National Center for AI. You've got this just incredible cluster that is actually not just denser than Palo Alto. The difference between our Palo Alto and their Palo Alto is that if you walk down Ossolston Street, you know, on on one side of Ossolston Street is a housing estate. Ten yards to the other side of that is is the Creek, is the British Library. And, you know, the, the dividing line in our society, and you can say this is a good thing, or you can say this is a bad thing, but it does mean you are actually confronted with inequality. And when we look at our mission as a business, and our purpose for being in that neighbourhood, it's, you know, we call it the Ossulston Street Challenge.
0: And how do you bridge those 10 yards?
1: That's our 20-year challenge. And I'll tell you, I mean, some of the practical steps that we've 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 taken, the first step we took is that you know, we allocated 2% of carry in all of our funds to a foundation. We've allocated 10% of profits in our management company to the foundation. That, that means that, you know, the foundation has a, a source of income, not just a source of windfalls from carry. And what we've done is, you know, we basically said, you've got to start this journey by being a good neighbor first we focus on the neighborhood how can we make a difference in our neighborhoods i think you know companies typically don't think of being neighbors they think of being residents in fact most of the time people are working in non-residential environments which means you just have no sense of, of the community or the neighborhood around you beyond that you know, we look at how do we support and impact the ecosystem. And by the ecosystem, I mean, the, the tech ecosystem in, in New Palo Alto. And, you know, we we do that by investing through the foundation in initiatives and in programs that we believe, you know, can help change the balance in the future. And And, you know, that's, from a diversity and an inclusion perspective, that's from a health
0: and a well-being
1: perspective.
0: Do do you marry the tech with the community in the sense that will kids at these secondary schools, for example, get a chance to, say, do work placements at some of your companies or would, you know, this isn't meant to sound facetious, but would the local GP surgery, for example, work with you to trial the latest health tech?
1: I mean, first of all, I would say that you know we've taken a 20 year view on this one thing we wanted to be very very cognizant of is moving into a neighborhood you know you're new and also you know you don't really know what contribution you can make to the neighborhood so you know our our rule of thumb was spend the first few years like literally just getting to know the schools the the social enterprises we've got a 20 year lease we can really sort of develop we can take our time now when covid hit you know, it was absolutely clear that th- there was a crisis, not just nationally, but particularly in a neighborhood where the, the, you know, the outcomes in the neighborhood are terrible compared to sort of the rest of the UK. So, you know, if you're an adult male living in Somerstown, you'll live 10 years less than an adult male in Highgate, which is 15 minutes up the road. Seven out of 10 kids in Somerstown are using social services so what we did was firstly we partnered with the local food bank and it was a very simple thing we said look you know we're not using our office because people are working remotely let's take our our weekly food budget for our office and let's just divert it to the food bank how can we help them set up their ordering system so actually we worked with one of our Portfolio companies, Reki, that you know, helps restaurants use technology to sort of, you know, order from high-quality suppliers. So we were able to work with Reki in the food bank, and you know, we're still doing this now, 54 weeks later, every week. That's great. The second thing that we did around digital inclusion was you know, work with Camden Learning. And we did did some needs assessments and we saw that there were over 3,000 kids in Camden who yeah. had no access to remote learning because they had no devices. So, you know, again, we worked with our, our local primary school, Edith Neville, and secondary school, Regents High. And, you know, we made a contribution there. And then on the sort of the health and the well-being side, you know, we've been working not just with our local GP surgery, but, you know, With others within this broader knowledge quarter, with London Business School, with UCLH, to actually develop a mass testing protocol for the neighborhood, which is not just about allowing the neighborhood access to sort of great new technologies when it comes to testing or diagnostics. And you know, we're lucky to be investors, say in Oxford Nanopore on the diagnostic side and a new company, VATIC, that does you know, a 15-minute saliva-based test for for COVID. So we were able to bring new technologies in, but actually the sort of the more important piece of work that was done there in partnership with a brilliant professor at London Business School, Kamalini Ramdas, was thinking about how you sort of deliver a kind of a community testing and and education protocol, because one of the challenges in, in many Lower income neighbourhoods is not necessarily giving people access to the technology, but making people feel comfortable about it. And so, a lot of our work there has been around how do you communicate, how do you support, versus how do you just
0: get people stuff. So this is great. So a vision is is developing in or becoming clear, which is, you know, it's good to get kind of takeouts from a podcast like this. So people listening to this who might be running an investment firm or indeed a tech company. Lesson one is be a good neighbour. Lesson two, and I don't want to put this too crudely, it's, it's kind of a win-win, which is you can encourage your local community to be early adopters of technology, which helps them and actually does help you to a certain extent. And I'm not saying that in a cynical way. I think it's a, a good virtuous circle. I think that's terrific. I mean, I wondered, I was going to ask a sort of side question, how receptive the local community has been. Sometimes they can be, people can be quite hostile if somebody just kind of lands in their neighbour and says, hey, we're here to help.
1: Absolutely. And that's why we didn't land and say, hey, we're here to help. You know, we we came in, we've created an environment that's very open. We, we know, you know, we, we're there for a long time. You know, we know that things don't happen overnight. So what we have really try to be is and I think that it is a key takeaway for me is like being a good neighbor is taking the time to listen and to learn and lay down long-term roots. I mean, someone was talking to me a few weeks ago about a a big pharmaceutical company in the Northeast in in, in the US. You know, who's the world leader in in sort of in health outcomes. And they did a piece of research that showed that actually, you know, the health outcomes in the neighborhoods around their headquarters were terrible. And it was like somehow shocking news to people, you know, in the at the board level and the exec suites, you know, because sometimes companies are thinking so globally or so nationally, or even you know, at a city level, you just forget, like, what about the people who live round the corner from me? And I think, you know, one of the interesting things about the future of work is that more people will be working in neighborhoods and we may have less dedicated environments that are sort of not mixed sort of residential and, and commercial and you know one of the great things we get to do in london and in paris and in amsterdam and in brussels is to learn to live with one another as you say it's not always pretty and you know it it takes time but you have to have a, an ethos and an attitude and at this point now uh, you know we we talk about you know people who are excluded. You know, because the majority of people, whether it's through mobile or through broadband, are able to use the Internet. Now, that means you have to profoundly change the way you think about building products and services. So, you know, I've, I've heard from people at Apple, for example, you know, it is very hard to build a world class mapping service for cities in Cupertino. Because most of your staff working on those products have never taken public transport or not taking it on a regular basis so again you know if you are designing for the mass market if you're designing for consumers in all areas in finance in housing in education in health in transport in food in energy you know you need to be in cities in my.
0: You sort of started answering my next question, which I was going to say to anyone listening to your passion who's inspired by it and thinking, how do I take my company into my neighborhood? One of the thoughts they might have is this sounds like a lot of work. There is a lot of work involved here, but it's one of the benefits of that work. Again, and it's not meant to sound cynical at all. It's meant, you know, there's an element, there's always got to be an element of self-interest. It makes your, the people you work with better at their jobs because they kind of understand what normal people want and need.
1: 100%. I, I was very lucky to, you know, Microsoft acquired the startup I was part of in, in Boston. And, you know, this was the time I worked in Redmond, you know, at HQ, you know, incredibly smart people there. And you'd sit in a room and, you know, you, you talk about, you know, the future of this industry or the future of that industry and be completely disconnected from, the people who's, who would be impacted by the products and the services you were making. And I think this to me is, you know, not just as investors, but also as, as people supporting uh, companies, you know, having this grounding in a real neighborhood, you know, where we are surrounded, not just with, you know, these shining bastions of, of the future, like the Crick and the Turing and, and, and Google and Facebook, etc. But old, you know, established neighborhoods dealing with real issues is sort of, I think, fundamental long term, not just to having a positive social impact, but value creation as well. And, you know, one of the there are three contrarian things we've always said to our investors, you know, number one, the ecosystem we're in can produce world class returns and that's been an insane thing to say for the last 20 years because europe and the uk have been thought of not as an emerging market but a frontier market number two is you know invest for the long term in your infrastructure and your team so we've invested way ahead of the curve in our in our physical environments in the in our in the size of our team relative to, this, to the size of our funds and the third thing which will play out, I think, in the next twenty to thirty years, and you know ESG is just a part of this is that it's no longer good enough just to have an economic impact. You need to integrate that with the the social impact that you're having. You need to do that based on first principles, not as an afterthought.
0: My last question, I just want to zoom out there because this is very inspiring, but I don't want to lose sight as well of the kind of national government role you talked about what you're doing very locally, but as you were talking about this, national global ecosystem that exists in camden what can government do if your average government minister sits down with saul klein and hears you talk about this extraordinary ecosystem and its potential where does government lean in or does it just let it develop i mean to a certain extent it's leaned in with the crick institute and the turing institute by placing them in king's cross but what else can it do
1: yeah look i mean I think, as I said, for the last 20, 25 years at least, you know, the UK government in all flavors, you know, Labour, Conservative coalition has been incredibly supportive to the ecosystem. I think when you listen to today's governments, you know, they talk about the UK as a as a global science superpower, you know, when you listen to the Chancellor. You know, and and Lord Hill's review. You know, there's real ambition to sort of improve. You know, the capital markets and help UK institutional investors grasp the opportunity. You know that that we have by investing in 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 our sort of innovation economy. So you know, there are lots and lots of big good things and small good things that are, that, that are happening. And you know, this is not. This government, you know, this has been the work of, you know, yourself included, you know, decades worth of like really good, I think, policy work and policy support. I guess what I would like to see more than anything is the integration of this of this thinking along the lines of not just how can we economically succeed here, but how can we lead when it comes to combining economic and, and social impact because i think you know if technology is really going to help us and science solve some of the big issues like climate change like covid and disease and other issues like you know more equality when it comes to education you know we have to have a, an integrated and grown up discussion between the policy world and and this world but also i think really importantly we need to include people with lived experience within this conversation. And to me, that is still the missing element. And I've been really inspired by how Camden
0: does this. Everything you say has suddenly reminded me of why I find actually Tony Blair, one of the most inspiring kind of policy thinkers on tech, because he has outlined, and it's kind of there for the taking for any political party, the progressive agenda for tech, which is exactly what you've just put it. You put it brilliantly, combining the economic success story with putting social impact right at the heart of tech policy, which I have to say has not actually really been part of any government's agenda. It's been relentlessly focused, partly a recurring theme through this chat of a kind of backward glance at the US and how do we mimic US tech success. And again, I'm going off on one now. I'm going off on a small lifestyle rant. One of the things I'm sort of obsessed by is, please, you know, we don't need to look over our shoulders at the US because in, in many respects, the UK is a fantastic place to live in terms of its health system, its criminal justice system, its education system. I think we, to a certain extent, I don't want to offend my US listeners, eclipse the US in that regard. And I think that does put us in pole position for the Klein manifesto of linking tech economic success with tech social impact. So Saul, thank you very much. I've got one small Acts to grind with you, which has nothing to do with you and is not your fault. You identify 120 future corns based in London, Paris, Cambridge, Amsterdam and Abingdon which is a small town in Oxfordshire but I know exactly what you're talking about. You're talking about an industrial park called Milton Park which is actually in my view in Didcot and I say that because now that I'm in the House of Lords I am actually Lord Vasey of Didcot and I want to be the tech lord. We've got to get Milton Park's designation changed from Abingdon to Didcot. I
1: will have a word with the <laughs> folks at, at deal room and explain to them that you know, <laughs> Abingdon is Didcot. And having been to Didcot Parkway,
0: yeah, great and, place. And,
1: and you know, to the the space catapults. And I know it's the home of Oxford Nanopore and Ox. You know, Open Cosmos. It's. I I, I think you're you're spot on. <laughs>
0: Anyway, so that was really, really inspiring. And thank you for talking with such passion about your vision. Uh, we could have gone on uh, for another couple of hours, but uh, we, can, we can talk offline. And I hope people listening to this podcast will be inspired because I also get thinking as you were talking, there's a book in here. I was going to say, you know, what summer sound going to look like in 20 years time, but I'm hoping uh, there'll be a book in the next three or four years, because I do think you could make a massive impact in forcing a lot of people in tech to think about how they can really make proper social impact.
1: If you know someone who wants to write it, I'd be happy to, to talk to them. It's not going to be me. <laughs> We're
0: going to find someone. Thanks so much, Saul. Cheers, Ed. Have a good weekend. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Vasey View, a production of Kindred Media.